Amen. We are uh, continuing this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark. You may remember the last week that in we were in, uh, in chapter seven of Mark's Gospel, and uh, last week uh, we saw Jesus go on a trip, road trip for Jesus. Uh, we got the map. I'm bringing back the map from last week. Jesus uh, left Galilee, went up about 35 miles to Tyre, uh, and then went further north up the coast to a city called Sidon, and then circled around to the east and then south through Syria down to a region called Decapolis, which in Greek simply means 10 cities. And that's where what we'll read this morning happens. A little bit more information about those locations. Galilee, for starters, is where Jesus is from. He was uh, born in Bethlehem, of course, but he grew up as a boy, as a young man in Nazareth, a small town village in Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. The headquarters of Jesus' ministry as uh, an adult and in his public ministry was a city called Capernaum, also near the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee. And Jesus spends most of the first part of his public ministry in Galilee. It's uh, largely rural. It's primarily Jewish. It's the, if you divided up Israel, or what we call Israel, or the Holy Land, or Palestine at the time, into three sections. Uh, there's Judah, there's Samaria, and then there's Galilee in the north. And Jesus spends almost all of his, the first half or so of the Gospels of his time in Galilee, except for this trip. Except for this trip. So in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, he takes off, and he leaves the Galilean area. He leaves the area of the Jews, goes to Tyre, encounters a woman there who has a daughter, as we talked about last week, who is possessed uh, or indwelt by an evil spirit, impure spirit, demon. She comes to Jesus, begs Jesus, heal my daughter, Jesus does. Then he goes up to Sidon. We don't really know why he went north or what happened there. Mark doesn't tell us. Then he goes east, east to you. And then south, and this is a long journey. We talked about last week, he's on foot. There's no donkey, there's no mule, there's no public transportation, there's no Uber. He's walking. And so this journey, though it happens quickly in Mark's gospel, immediately, immediately next, could have taken months, a months long journey. And so we pick up the story with Jesus down in the southern part of the Decapolis. That's where he is today. So uh, before I read, let me pray one more time. Uh, Thanks, Walter, for uh, praying, and I'm gonna pray again. God, help us uh, to set aside the things that distract us. Help us to set aside preconceived notions. Help us to set aside our worries and our fears and our stresses that we might be attentive to you. Connect our spirits with your spirit. Uh, Fill us and empower us. Bring about within us things that are good, things that bring you glory, things that bring us joy. Grow us up in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So now reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter eight, verse one. Listen closely, this is God's word. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion for these people. Interesting, pause. Many times, 
in the Gospels, Jesus is said to have compassion. This is the one and only time where Jesus says, first person, I have compassion. Compassion throughout the scriptures is a characteristic, a trait of God, of who God is. It goes to the heart of who God is. Compassion in uh, the English word comes from the Latin word, compassio, with suffering. Compassion is to suffer with someone, to empathize with them, to be with them in their suffering. I have compassion, Jesus says. Verse two, I have compassion for these people. He's all in. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. There's no corner stores. They don't have refrigerators. No uh, food that lasts for months with all sorts of preservatives. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. We have seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. The word is satiated, filled, They can't take in any more. Everything they want, they got. Their bellies are overflowing. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls, and these, there are two Greek words for basket. And there's the ordinary little word, like uh, like an Easter basket, like an ornamental basket. And then there's this word that begins with the prefix coffin because uh, it's big like a coffin, It's abundant. It's the kind of basket the man in chapter two of Mark's gospel is lowered down in through the roof. It is big. It is abundant. They picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Something has happened. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Jesus sighed deeply. Again, he's all in emotionally and physically from the deepest part of his being. Ah, disappointment. Jesus sighed and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. No soup for you. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, ironically, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. It was already in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Yeast always has negative connotations when it's used as a metaphor in the scriptures. Negative to the point of often being evil. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another, disciples, and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves to the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they said. 
And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not get it? And if you've been with us on this journey through Mark's gospel to this point, and if you're thinking that this passage sounds a little bit familiar, you are right. Pat yourself on the back. Two chapters ago, at the end of uh, chapter six, Mark tells his readers there about a time when Jesus somehow miraculously fed thousands of people gathered in an outlying area with just a few loaves and fish. And one may wonder, was Mark in chapter eight aware that he had already told this story back in chapter six? Or had Mark forgotten by the time he got to chapter eight that he had already written about this story in chapter six? Writing was a slow process then. Have you ever told someone a story twice? Be honest. Have you ever told someone a story twice about something you've done, something you've seen, something you've witnessed, something that happened to you? Or have you ever started to tell someone a story and then you hesitated and wondered, have I told this this story to this person before? And what are they gonna think of me if I repeat this story? That I'm a lunatic, that I don't have a memory, that I just really, really want them to understand this story? Or is there someone in your life who tells the same story over and over and over and over? Let's see a show of hands. How many people have those people in their lives? who tell that story over and over, maybe even thinking that, oh, I don't think they've ever heard this story before. I know some people whose memories are so short that they could plan their own surprise party (laughs) and still be surprised. A husband and a wife, they were uh, in their 90s and they were starting to uh, become more forgetful and they wondered if something was medically wrong with them. So they made an appointment with the doctor that they shared and went and uh, met with the doctor and said, we're having these issues where we're not remembering stuff like we used to. We're wondering if things uh, have been changing, whether something's wrong is the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's or something. And the doctor examined them, did some tests and the result was, no, you're fine. Everything's fine. You're just forgetting some things. So what I suggest is that you start to write things down. Make notes to yourself and for others. They said, okay, fine, we can do that. And they went home. That evening, they're in uh, their living room watching TV together. The old man got up from his chair and his wife said, where are you going? He says, I'm going to the kitchen. She says, oh, while you're in the kitchen, would you get me a bowl of ice cream? He says, sure, I'll be happy to do that. She said, maybe you should write it down. He's like, I don't need to write that down. She's like, okay, well, could you put some cherries in there for me too? He says, sure, I'll be happy to do that. She says, you better write that down. He's like, I don't need to write that down. She's like, okay, fine. Could you put some whipped cream on top of it for me then if you're gonna remember all of this? And he said, sure, I'd be glad to do this. And she says, you probably ought to write it down. And he says, honey, frustrated, I don't need to write that down. So about 15 minutes later, he returns from the kitchen with a plate of bacon and eggs. (laughs) And she looks at it and looks disparagingly at him and says, you forgot my toast. (laughs) Did Mark forget that he'd already told readers about Jesus feeding thousands of people? Or is this an event in chapter eight, a different event, a different day, a different occasion that what, than what we read about, what we read about in chapter six? So we can understand those scholars and those critics and those attentive detail people and those skeptics 
who might assume that these events recorded in chapter six and again in chapter eight were actually only one very unique event recorded twice by either a forgetful author or by someone who was just so enamored by this grand miracle that he wanted that story to be told again and again. After all, both narratives tell of a vast multitude of people gathered around Jesus. Both narratives are set in a remote area. In both accounts, the people have been without food for a while and are hungry. In both accounts, Jesus is said to have compassion on them and for them. In both accounts, Jesus asks his disciples what resources are available with which and for which these people can be fed In both accounts, there is sacramental language. Did you notice Jesus takes, thanks, breaks, and gives bread? And in both narratives, Jesus sees to it that all of the people are fed. In both narratives, the people are said to be satisfied, content. In both narratives, uneaten pieces of bread and fish are collected after the people have eaten. They sound like the same event. But there are some differences. There are slight differences in these two narratives, most notably having to do with numbers, the number of days the crowd have been with Jesus or have been without food, the number of loaves and bread and fish found to be available for feeding the crowd, the number of baskets of fragments that were picked up after everyone had eaten, the number of thousands of people who were there. Nevertheless, why? Why? With such limited space available to him, why would Mark record in his gospel two stories that were almost exactly the same and that happened so close to each other? Why would Mark commit some of his precious space in his gospel, in his book, to something like this? There was no paper. Everything had to be written on papyrus, no typewriters, no computers, no e-books, An author really had to work with limited space and so had to be very selective about what he included in what he was writing. Thus, it made sense to keep things as concise as possible. Why would Mark use precious space in his gospel to record a remarkably similar event or occasion or miracle? And if we don't understand the answer to that question, we shouldn't feel bad because Jesus' disciples didn't really get it either. At times, it seems like they didn't get much. They were slow on the uptake when Jesus introduced new things, new ways of seeing the world, a new and different kind of kingdom. They, like the Pharisees, were blinded by their expectations. They were stuck in their worldviews. And this describes me today. Jesus seems particularly frustrated by the Pharisees who were continually picking on Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 11 that the Pharisees came to question and test Jesus. Not so much to inquire, but to investigate, to accuse, to trap. And again, why? To justify themselves. This is what they did. This is what people still do. The Pharisees seemingly couldn't see, and this is a serious matter. Jesus had just fed thousands of people with a handful of loaves and fishes. There are thousands of eyewitnesses to this feat or to this miracle, as there have been to Jesus casting out demons and healing all sorts of people. And yet they ask for a sign. They don't really want a sign. There were plenty of signs and witnesses to signs everywhere. They want something else. They want things to be and to stay exactly as they are. They want nothing to change about their particular world and reality. A reality that worked really well for them, for their perspectives, for their places, for their power. 
And so Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are disturbed by Jesus' new and different way of interpreting the scriptures, of disrupting the social order that they wanted kept in place for their own benefit, for sort of the working and ordering of their own minds and worldview. The Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign. He sighs deeply. There's disappointment. There's sadness. And then there were the disciples who had by now gotten in the boat. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? I can provide bread. I've just shown you. I'm really good at making bread. I'm like this super divine bread maker, baker. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then again, some questions about numbers. And finally, in verse 21, don't you understand? But who could blame them? Uh, Jesus is often aloof. He talks in parables. He talks in puzzles. He talks sometimes even in riddles. But maybe one difference in the two miracle feeding accounts is the key to understanding and that difference, that key difference was, as they say in real estate, location, location, location. The big difference between the first group of people and the second group of people was location. And what's the big deal between one town and one region and another town and another region? It was who the people were in that location. Over in Galilee, where Jesus had done the first feeding miracle, all of the people were Jewish, or almost all of the people. It was Jewish culture. And so that made one kind of sense. But now in part two, time to act two, the same or very similar miracle is among non-Jewish people, among pagan people, among godless people or many godded people, among people who were despised by the Jews and who equally despised the Jews. That was the sort of relationship that had evolved over hundreds of years and still exists 2,000 years later, no? Between the Jewish people and all of the people who surround them. This mutual derision. Is it not? Was it not? And so the big difference between these two very, very, very otherwise similar accounts, narratives, and really different events and miracles was the location, and more specifically, the people. And so Jesus says to his disciples, do you not see, do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? There was this heritage and this context that if we read out of context, we wouldn't pick up on. It's just another miracle. This is the way we teach it in children's Sunday school. I would imagine it was the way I was taught it in children's Sunday school. It doesn't matter if you're reading chapter six or chapter eight because it's the same happy story. Jesus is magic. He makes bread where there wasn't enough bread. He's pulling fish out of his pockets. But it's not like that. That's not the point. That's not Jesus' message. His disciples don't get it. The Pharisees don't want to get it. 
some of this is rewind from last week. And part of me feels guilty and dirty about it. You can't repeat a sermon or a theme or a message or a topic from one Sunday to the next. That's not what they're paying you for. But on the other hand, when the themes and the message and the point repeat and repeat and repeat, it's important that we note that. And it's important that we hear that again and again and again because we, like Jesus' disciples, are inclined to not get it. At the beginning of chapter seven, Jesus declares all food clean. In the latter part of chapter seven of Mark's gospel, Jesus declares all people clean. And now he's enacting that. He has taken his disciples on a field trip. This has been training for the disciples up until this point in his gospel, and they're still not getting it. But it's training nevertheless. And this part of the training is about what we call the Great Commission. But when we hear the Great Commission, is it not true that our minds go to the last chapter and the last five verses, the last three verses of Matthew's gospel, when in the very end, Jesus pulls this thing out of his hat and goes, and by the way, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now go, my work is done. Now go and make disciples of all nations, peoples, ethnicities. But that's not when Jesus initially started handing out that message. He wasn't gonna spring that on them at the very end. This was the message all the way along. Though people weren't picking up on it. The Jews understood that the covenant of God was just for the Jewish people. And so they understood that the compassion of God was just for the Jewish people. And Jesus, a little at a time, by immersion, by riddle, by metaphor, by parable, by taking them along for the ride, by showing them what he was doing and who he was doing it with and who he was doing it for, a Greek woman of Phoenician descent, a foreigner, in every way possible, up the coast where the pagans lived, around in Syria where the foreigners dwelt, down into the Decapolis where the people were not clean. Jesus goes exhibiting compassion. And the bread and the fish are just the means of that. And the tip of the iceberg and the ways in which Jesus and acts and demonstrates the compassion, not just of a Jewish carpenter from Galilee, but of the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the God of all people. Jesus also wants his disciples to understand what the church has forgotten. That the Christian faith is inherently a missionary faith. From the very beginning, you remember, Jesus comes on the scene and says the kingdom of God is coming. And it comes with him, the king, and it's manifest, but it doesn't stop coming when Jesus comes. It's a continual coming. And so we pray, thy kingdom come and continue to come. It's coming and it's still coming. And Jesus intends that it continues to come and spread and go. Not like leaven, but like yeast 
growing, being sent, and the way that happens is through God's spirit and through God's word, but also largely and primarily through his people who go into the foreign lands and among people who are not like us, who are different. If we take the Jewish people in this story and say that widening this circle include the Gentile people, then we have to read this today to think, take the church, not that the church is Israel or the Jewish people, but from our place and our setting, the church now must go out into all the world. Not to ourselves, not to other church people, certainly not exclusively. Not even to our neighborhoods only, but to those places where the people are godless, to those places where people are unclean, to those places where people speak another language. Go, go, go. The compassion of God is for all people. Are we as compassionate toward other people who are different than us as we are toward one another, as we want for ourselves? And there's the incongruity in much of our faith. For much of the church, we understand the church and the body of Christ to function like a club where our needs are met. And Jesus says, your needs are met. Now share bread and fish with other people. We don't have enough bread. We don't have enough bread. You remember the sort of... uh, the pastor at the end of the capital campaign says, I've got some good news and some bad news. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? And they say, give us the good news. And he says, the good news is that we've got enough money to reach our goal. What's the bad news? The bad news is it's still in your pockets. <laughs> we don't have enough bread. There's plenty of bread. And Jesus wants to turn the church inside out. We call ourselves a church for the community. Do we extend to our community the kind of compassion that Jesus has extended to us? That Jesus extended to the people in Galilee, the Jewish people, the insider people? Do we extend that sort of compassion through him, with him, by him, to those beyond the reach of the walls of the church It's been said that the church is the only organization on earth that exists primarily for its non-members. There's some truth in that. I was uh, always delighted when a small group of people that Christy calls together once a month make sandwiches for homeless people in our community. And that is a small thing, but it is a significant thing because it involves bread And it's a reminder that the church has resources that by God's grace we have been given and we get to give and give and give. And the church, a church that calls itself a church for the community should be a factory of bread, generating, producing with the resources that God has given us along with other churches and people who are in Christ, disciples of Jesus who follow him. Everything that our community needs so that poverty and homelessness and great need are eradicated in our community as they may have been in Palestine in the first century through Jesus. The church is called to be a furnace of compassion. 
and a furnace of compassion, not that burns up, but that generates for non-church people, for foreigners, for unreached people, for the poor and the hungry and the destitute. This is a great and has been for decades a great global missions, mission sending church. Praise God. Interestingly, in the United States, the average church budget, about 95% of the average church budget is spent on the church itself internally, sustaining itself, meeting its own needs. About 5% goes beyond. Of that 5%, about 99% goes to people who are already reached, to churches that are already reached. About 1% goes to unreached people. Remarkable, remarkable numbers. Mark is curious about numbers and interested in numbers. We need to know the story. We need to know the context. Jesus asks, do you understand? Do I understand? Do we understand? We're getting it, Jesus. We're getting it a little bit at a time. Be patient with us. Have mercy on us. God intends to continue to do great and even greater things. Mega is the Greek word Jesus uses through you and through us and through his disciples, extending his compassion, one person at a time, one crowd at a time, one community at a time, one region at a time, until all the world knows God's love, specifically in Jesus. May this be so, let us pray. As we prayed in the beginning or a few minutes ago, God, solidify within us, in our minds and our hearts, that which you would have us understand and know and become. Each one of us as individuals, as followers of Jesus, us as a body, First Presbyterian Church, and the collective unity of your people on earth. Having been recipients of your gracious and abundant compassion, your suffering with us, your condescension to earth in the man and Lord Jesus, may we be vessels of your compassion to the people around us with the resources that you provide and that you multiply. Lead us and help us to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.